Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Hello, good morning, and welcome to the Michael Reed Show. This is Ken Murray sitting in for Michael. Michael's on a day off, and we'll be back with you tomorrow morning. Okay, we start off with the story that, uh, if you like, one that uh, just keeps on giving. We're 20 months into this pandemic, and if anything, the COVID-19 infection rates appear to be getting worse rather than better. At the weekend, on Saturday, just under 6,000 infections uh, were reported nationally, and yesterday the figure was over 4,000. And to complicate or add to this uh, depressing news, it has emerged that uh, Drogheda is the locality with the highest rate of COVID-19 19 in the state, according to the latest weekly figures. Now, three local electoral areas in and around the county, uh, the, the, around uh, Drogheda, are among the five worst affected areas for the disease. Apparently, Laytown, Bettystown, uh, just south of the town, has the fifth highest incidence rate with 1,878 cases per 100,000 persons. And apparently, if one was to break down the figures, one in every 41 persons living in Drogheda has COVID-19. This is quite worrying, not only locally, but indeed uh, nationally. To get a, a sense of where we're at, I'm joined on the line right now by Fergus O'Dowd, who is Fine Gael TD for Louth and East Meath, and uh, Rurio Muraku is the Sinn Féin TD for Louth and East Meath. Uh, Fergus O'Dowd, I'll start with you. Uh, as I said, Drogheda has the worst infection rate in the entire country. How do you explain this? Well, unfortunately, all you can say is the only reason that is happening is because the, the virus is spreading and we know how it spreads. So the key basic points, and Dr. Hoolan was saying this this morning on the radio, is basically wear your mask at all times when you're out with people. Keep your physical distance. Wash your hands. Uh, reduce your unnecessary contacts. And if you have an appointment for for vaccination or for a test, please take it. And they're the main things. And if you do all of those things, clearly you will reduce your chance of getting the infection. Um, but it does, it is spreading and it is it's absolutely appalling and it's an awful vista to have all those people getting sick. And obviously their families are very worried. We're all worried about it, but huge pressure on our hospitals. And obviously it's the last thing anybody wants to happen. But is there any particular reason why Drogheda has the worst rate in the country? Well, the worst rate of the country at one stage was up in the north of the county. I talked about last year was up in Cooley. It was exceptionally high. And then it was along the border then. 
And what was said at that time, that there was a lot of people going over and back along the border for commercial and family activities. In the Drogheda area and the areas you mentioned, we have a particularly high number of people who commute, who who go up to Dublin or or, or who actually come into the town to work. Uh, And that has been a huge impact like on on COVID. And that's why it it was uh, recommended there that if you can at all, last week, and that's what the government said, to work from home. So that will reduce significantly the social contacts. Every morning there's almost a car crash on, on the M1 going to Dublin, as you know, at the Julianstown exit there. There's huge volumes of traffic. I don't know what it's like this morning, but I presume it's gone significantly down and reducing all of that commute and people working from home, if it's possible, uh, that is the best way to reduce the spread. And I hope, I would hope it will have a significant impact on the on the amount of COVID that there is in the Drogheda area right now, as you say, the worst in the country. OK, Rúri O'Muraku, you're uh, the Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Mead. Your base is Dundalk. Um, Fergus was making the point there that the figures were pretty bad in the north of the constituency, but uh, not as bad now. Have uh, people in North Louth got their act together? Well, look here. We've we've obviously had worrying numbers across the board, Riyadh, and the numbers are particularly bad in Drogheda. And I suppose what happens is you reach a critical mass and it becomes more difficult to avoid, um, obviously, disease. The more of it that's there, the more chances of people um, becoming uh, sick. And I suppose one of the things that Tony Holohan spoke about earlier is what we all need to do is, he says that the the transmission rate is in around 1.25 and we need to bring that down below one. And I suppose we all have to play our part in relation to that. And myself, Fergus, and, and uh, a number of other Oireachtas members were called to a meeting in the last number of weeks by Public Health Northeast, and the, the message from them was that there were worrying signs of spikes, you know, across a you know a huge amount of areas in this general region, and that um, we were going to be under pressure. Now, on on, on some level, some of this pressure that we were going to be under should have been anticipated in the sense we. We all know the issue in relation to the fact that we don't have a sufficient amount of ICU capacity. We haven't made sufficient allowance to increase that. Uh, I know that that you know that that won't deal with the with the entire issue, but it means we're we're starting from a bad bad place. We always have issues at this time of year with flu and and whatever. And I know from talking to David Cullinan, he would speak that you know talking to hospital managers and others across the state, what they say is. We, we, we suffer from the fact that sometimes the primary care system we have isn't good enough sometimes to, you know, take people out of the system before they actually make it to hospital. So we're, we're dealing with all those, uh, all those legacy issues. We would have also heard today from John Boyle of the INTO about the, the teachers calling for, you know, a return, obviously, to a contact tracing system in relation to schools, dealing with the substitution issue. And, and look, we, we, I think it's fair to say across the board, and you'll even get some members of government that will state it, that we were very slow in relation to getting our act together in relation to antigen testing. And, and look, there is no magic bullet, but we have a number of tools and we need to employ them as quickly as possible. OK, but just let me, let me put this question to you. We had a situation where, I think it was around this time last year, the government ignored NEFID advice uh, in relation to the lockdown. And uh, then we had a situation where we 
we had a second lockdown around Christmas and we've had the government opening up the hospitality sector and within weeks of the hospitality sector opening up, the figures have increased dramatically. Is the government going about this the right way? Well, look, there is an element of mixed messaging and people aren't entirely sure in relation to what they're meant to do. So that all of that needs to be cleared up. What I was happy to hear is I think there's plans for briefing of, you know, opposition parties. And I think they were talking about particularly the House spokespeople and party leaders um, from Tolly Holohan, because that's to get basically the read in relation to um, what the proposals are from NEFET, what the reasons are for some of the actions that have been taken. And I suppose the difficulty with this particular pandemic, the difficulty with COVID-19 is that you take an action and you don't necessarily see the results until, you know, two weeks period and you know whether sufficient has been done or not. But look, we need to make sure that we do absolutely everything from a public health standpoint. And as I say, there are a number of tools that we haven't employed and I'm putting antigen testing at the top of that list. Okay. You know what I mean? Because okay. it's not sufficient just to say, you know, we need everybody to act in a response. Sure, but I, I, I want A huge amount of people have, but and there are those that won't. Okay, I want to come back to Fergus O'Dowd. Um, Fergus, Rory is accusing the government of engaging in mixed messaging. Is he right? Uh, well, I think he's absolutely incorrect and wrong. And if you read the Irish Independent today, uh, I think the key point is, and indeed what Dr. Hona said, we talk about the politics and the charges in a second. If you keep your distance, wear your mask, act sensibly, reduce your contacts, work from home if you can, take your appointments, You'd be nobody going to hospital if everybody follows that because you won't get COVID. And that's the reality. And if you if you had 10,000 additional beds in this country or any other country, it, that won't stop COVID. What will stop COVID is your own individual actions. Sure, but, but I know, Fergus, but I have to put the mind. point to you. Hold on a second. I think this is the key point. And, and, and uh, uh, the other point that hasn't been mentioned is that 40% of the ICU beds at the moment are filled with less than 6% of the people. Uh, and they, that 6% of the people are, are unvaccinated. And they are getting extremely ill, significantly more of them than people who are vaccinated. So in many ways, it's, it's, it's a sickness of people who have not got the vaccine and they're placing themselves in huge jeopardy. And that's why so many of them are in hospital and the other point is they're also placing you and me and other people in jeopardy also because they sure. could be transmitting that disease to us. And they, so to and blame the government to blame the government for that is, is ridiculous. And the fact is that Sinn Féin uh, were in favour of opening up the pubs long before we opened them up. Uh, they, they're absolutely inconsistent in what they want. They wanted mandatory quarantine of everybody coming to the States when it was impractical. They're for everything and they're against everything. So okay, well, Rurio Muraku, what, 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 sure, what do you say to that charge, Rurio Muraku, that Sinn Féin was all for opening up the pubs and the nightclubs, and since the pubs and the nightclubs reopened about three weeks ago, we've had this massive surge in infections. In other words, Sinn Féin have called it wrong. Look, let's be absolutely clear. The government are in the driving seat. It's them that have the power. It's them that get the public health advice directly. 
So they, it's they who have the responsibility and the power and need to do it. And it's all well and good talking about us in the, in the opposition. At the end of the day, we have always said we will follow public health advice. We don't always get the same level of briefings. I told you I was very happy to hear that our party was going to get this. And we have said we have found difficulties with the way government has done things. Like, see, in relation to restrictions and what have you, we accept that these were needed at particular times and absolutely necessary. Look, I also accept that uh, Pony Holin said this is preventable, right? It, yeah, that's not to say that people will find themselves in situations and will be incredibly unlucky and will follow best practice and will be unlucky and will get this disease. But we do need people to follow best practice. We do need due diligence. I, I accept we need as many people as possible to be vaccinated. That goes without saying. We also have the issue of the waning effect. So, um, look, the booster, uh, obviously, boost, the booster campaign is an absolute necessity. And I suppose government needs to engage with NIAC and then NEFET from a point of view of ensuring that um, we have the okay, rule uh, of, of the booster campaign. Yeah. And then we make sure that we have sufficient capacity to do it as quickly as possible. And that's accepting all the logistics okay, in the sense that people might need to have waited three months or six months following vaccination. Sure, sure. I just want to move it on because there's a few other angles I want to explore on this. There's a cabinet subcommittee this evening and the uh, the... The, the wage subsidy scheme will be discussed and the PUP payment and so on. Uh, Fergus O'Dowd, I mean, will it be logical to reinstate the employment um, subsidy scheme uh, for those who are struggling as a result of the increase in COVID infections? It is still there. And what they're talking about, there is a reduction due on it now and what the government would be deciding as to whether to have that reduction or not. And I believe they shouldn't reduce it. Uh, because what is happening, this is not a closed down of the country. This is obviously, it is significantly affecting a number of people, particularly in nightclubs and what they call the nighttime economy. Um, and it's important that the employment wage subsidy scheme should continue and that people who will lose their employment between now and Christmas or whenever they, they, they it's decided that we can all go back again to normal lives, that they would not suffer financially. And I think that's what the EWSS is about. And I think over 4.5 billion has been spent on that so far. So there's no, I don't believe that that will be an issue, but it's obviously a matter for the government to decide. But the other thing I think the government should be doing is increasing the requirement to have your COVID pass to go into many more places. Because if you have your COVID pass, you are vaccinated. And therefore, you're much safer going into many areas. But if you're not vaccinated, and if you're going into an area where there's a higher risk of getting COVID, I think that if you can't go in until you're vaccinated, and if it's not an essential service like buying food or clothes or issues like that. Okay, okay. I just want to come back to Rory O'Muraku. I just want to come back to Rory O'Muraku. Are you satisfied, Rory, that the government is doing enough to promote and encourage people who are in the 60 to 69 age bracket uh, to get a booster? Well, look, we've, we've heard in the fact that there's been a whole pile of no-shows, a serious percentage. Now, we've also heard at times that people have been offered it multiple times. Um, look, I, I suppose we need to make it clear that uh, because of the waning effect, and even at this stage, I suppose people, some people aren't calling this the booster. They're just saying it's basically uh, three shots are required to follow the entire uh, vaccine regimen. So we do need to get that message across to people. But I would just mention as well 
that, yeah, there is decent mood music around the likes of the EWSS and the CRSS that are absolutely necessary, particularly if we're talking about arts, hospitality, taxi drivers that are going to be all impacted by this. But it is worrying that we're dealing with a cut in the pup and that there is no sign from government at this point in time that that's going to be restored. So I, 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 I like to hear the fact that uh, I assume the likes of Fergus will be talking to his colleagues and will be pushing from that point of view because the whole reason why we introduced these was to keep businesses safe, to keep people safe, so they could make the right decisions. Okay, uh, uh, Fergus, uh, uh, Fergus, I want to come back to you. I mean, a question a lot of people are asking, and I see that Austria has gone into a full lockdown. The Netherlands is in a three-week partial lockdown. A lot of people out there, particularly in business, want to know, are we looking at a fourth lockdown here in Ireland? No, we're not looking at a fourth lockdown at all. This is a curfew lockdown. In other words, a late night, you can't obviously stay out later than midnight in terms of the place of entertainment or whatever. So everybody is still working in pubs and restaurants. Our economy is open. You can shop basically where you like. Uh, we're asking you to work from home. But I think the key point is this, that the only way we'll stop this is by individual actions. That's the only way. And I agree, improved government messaging as well in terms of you must turn up for your vaccine booster. Um but I, I think the key thing is, if, if, if we obey the rules, then we won't have a lockdown. But if we don't obey the rules, well, then more people are going to get sick. And if Christmas is coming, and we all know how important that is, particularly for our families, you're going to have huge numbers of people traveling to their families, and rightly so. And the safest way to do that between now and then is to obey all the rules in terms of keeping safe, keep your distance, Wear okay. your mask. Don't want, go into crowded sure. areas. So we will have a Christmas. Just final People question. To be able to work. Yeah, final question to Rory. Rory, are we looking at a situation where effectively uh, Christmas 2021 is going to be cancelled? Well, here, we're all hoping that this isn't going to be the situation. And like I said, yeah, we need people to follow best practice in relation to distancing, wearing masks, washing hands and all that stuff. We also need to get our act together. The government needs to get their act together in relation to ruling out serial antigen testing from a point of view of it's a mitigation, it's where people can catch infection, you know, particularly if they do it on a on a serial basis every couple of days. And then, yeah, we do want people to follow, as I say, best practice, but we need to make sure then that we have all the capacity we need, that the correct decisions are made in relation to the booster campaign and that we give ourselves every possible chance we have and that we are not in any way found lacking and that we provide those protections to those individuals and those businesses that have been impacted and may be impacted into the okay. future. All right. As I said, this story is one that just keeps on giving and no doubt Michael will deal with this again in more detail throughout the rest of the week. we we'll leave it there. That's uh, Fergus O'Dowd, Finnegale TD and Rurio Murakou, Sinn Féin TD, both representing Louth and East Meath in the Oireachtas. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, moving on to the issue of accommodation. It's probably uh, the biggest talking point in the country other than COVID. And uh, according to reports, renters will have the right to tenancies of unlimited duration under new draft laws from the Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien. The move aims to strengthen long-term security of tenure, but landlords will continue to have wide discretion to end such leases. 
I'm not so sure if this is good news or bad news or indeed if indeed it amounts to change at all. Well, to discuss it, I'm joined on the line by John uh, McCafferty, who is the Chief Executive of Threshold, the National Housing Charity. Uh, First of all, John, is this good news or does it amount to no change? It's um, a progression. Um, It's not necessarily... um indefinite tenancies across the board um, so it's not necessarily everything that we as a, as a renters uh, organisation and as a housing charity uh, would be looking for but at least it's a start. Um, now I think my understanding is that what it seeks to achieve is that um, one of the things that's currently in the legislation is that um, a tenancy can end, a landlord can end the tenancy at the end of six years uh, for no real reason. Um, and that the legislation will seek to to remove that uh, piece from the legislation so that um, those tenancies can continue. But what I also understand is that that um, will only come into effect for new tenancies, so uh, that it it could mean that it it would be years before anyone can benefit from that um, legislation in the sense that um, it would apply to um, tenancies which commence after the, uh, the enactment of the legislation, um, so you could be looking at six years hence. Okay, um, now, acor- also- uh, yeah, according to the Minister, Darrell O'Brien, uh, the proposal will include a 2% cap on annual rent increases, but isn't the reality that if greedy landlords want to push up the rent further, all they have to do is go into the tenant and say, look, Johnny, I'm thinking of selling the property, you're going to have to leave at the end of the month, and Johnny leaves, and then the next tenants come in, and the rent is pushed up, in some cases, by 5%. Isn't that the problem that this uh, proposal, if you like, doesn't address? Well, in fact, there's, there's two points there. One is um, how long someone might be given notice for. Um, and actually, the notice periods are, are a lot longer now than they were some years ago, depending on how long you've been in the um, in, in the, the tenancy. So if you've been in for a good number of years, your your notice period will be um, many, many months and all of that information you, you can get when you talk to one of our advisors and thresholds. I suppose the second element there is, now some landlords may try that, but that would not be legal because um, not only in terms of kind of the, the month's notice, but also in relation to the fact that um, a landlord can't end a tenancy um, and then start a new one with a, 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 an increase in rent, which is over the 2%. Um, and that was the same with the rent pressures on legislation from 2016. Um, if there's been kind of constant tenancies with a gap of more than two years, then the only um, increase, uh, the maximum increase that rents can go up, regardless of whether you change tenants, it was was 4%. And under this legislation, the largest uh, increase you can charge tenants, um, regardless of whether you change those, those tenancies, is 2%. So um, some landlords may try and, and, and increase it over and above that, but that would not be legal. Um, I know, but but the government the government can't act as a policeman on every single landlord in the state. And as I said, if if a if a landlord uh, realizes that the uh, the the property next door is achieving a rent of, we'll say, eighteen hundred euro a month, and he's only charging fourteen hundred euro a month, he may say, well, if the market is determining eighteen hundred a month, I want to get my tenant out so I can push up the rent and pocket more money. Uh, who's going to keep an eye on this? 
Yeah, good question. Um, now, the Residential Tenancies Board are tasked with the investigations and sanctions, so um, they have been tasked by the government to, if you like, keep an eye on that. However, I, I think you're pointing to the the, the, the real politique of this, which is um, it is a landlord's market. Um, tenants have less power than, than landlords. Um, tenants are scared of rocking the boat often with, with some landlords because they feel as if they, uh, they challenge a landlord or if they don't um, acquiesce or agree to um, an increase in the rent above the 2%, then the landlord will do something to, to, to um, end the tenancy or, or make the tenancy very, very difficult. And I think the reality is that with so little um, private rented accommodation in the market, there's so few other options for people who are renting, it's not sure. like they can say, can, well, can, like, can, can I put know, the po- Yeah, I'm can I put ahead. the point to you, John? Isn't one of the problems in Leinster House is that too many Oireachtas members are landlords themselves and they are reluctant to bring in, if you like, a framework that is very much the norm in continental Europe where a tenant has, a, if you like, security of tenure practically for life? There's a long way to go um, in relation to protection of tenants. Um, and I think... The legislation has been so conservative and, and so, I guess, um, hasn't adequately protected uh, tenants and their families for, I mean, you know, I, I suppose up until now. I would say there have been welcome increases in the, uh, the protections afforded ten- tenants in, in recent years. It doesn't go far enough. Um, this change of, uh, you know, this change that's coming through the door around um, uh, tenancies not being ended for no reason after six years, that's welcome, but it's only the beginning of a, a raft of things that need to happen. Um, and so there is a, there's still a further cultural shift and legislative shift that needs to happen well, finally, in order to make... Yeah, on that point, and this is the last question, John Mark, are you satisfied that the government is doing enough and acting quick enough uh, to address this crisis that tenants have with rootless landlords? There's a whole heap of stuff still to do in terms of um, improving security of tenure. Um, And there's a number of things to build on, for example, making uh, tenancies truly um, indefinite. Um, We need to look at things like... um, sale. Currently, most evictions are due to um, a landlord selling. Is there a way we can do that with selling properties where, where tenants can remain in, in the home? That is the norm in, in, in many parts of Europe that you mentioned. Um, so that, you know, renting is a, a tenure um, which is as desirable as, as home ownership or, or social housing. I think there's, there's still further work to do, but just to underline that we are there to advise tenants and to protect tenancies through our uh, tenancy protection service on 1800 okay. 454. All right. Okay, we leave it there. Thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us. No doubt that's a story that will rumble on uh, way into the future. That's uh, John Mark McCafferty there, the Chief Executive of Threshold. More to come. We'll take a break. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. Joined on the line right now by Mark McGowan, who is president of the Restaurants Association of Ireland. They've been lobbying on behalf of the hospitality sector to get their particular industry uh, open as quick as possible. Uh, Mark McGowan, we've seen a situation where the pubs and the nightclubs opened up about, what, three weeks ago. And uh, in the meantime, I don't know if it's connected, the uh, COVID-19 numbers have surged. We had just under 6,000 infections on Saturday, over 4,000 yesterday's. Was it right... uh, 
to reopen so quickly and was it, if you like, prudent of the government to cave in to your lobby? Well, first, first of all, I think that it's important to state that where the cases were back then is a different scenario that we're in now. So our industry has followed public health advice all the way. And if whatever restrictions are imposed on the businesses we've, we've taken on board. So all we can do is, is follow public health guidance at the time and the time of place that where the cases are at at that particular time, you know. Uh, well, let's talk about the nightclub business. I mean, uh, nightclubs were crying on on the media every other day that their businesses were on the verge of closing down and they begged the, to, to reopen. And we've seen situations, if TV pictures or anything to go by, where nightclubs have opened and social distancing has not been observed. Now, I'm not saying uh, that this has led to the surge uh, in infections, but uh, if the optics are anything to go by, it seems that people in the nightclub business have not been, if you like, adhering to the rules. Do the nightclub sector have questions to answer? Well, look, I, I don't have a nightclub. I'm not in the nightclub business. I'm in the restaurant business. But what, what I'd say is that I think complacency has set in on, in all aspects of society. I mean, we're in the Aviva Stadium with full capacity crowds. The GAA have full capacity crowds because that's, what, that's the state of play at that particular time. So I think that um, that's up to Netflix and the CMO and, and government to roll out restrictions to curb that kind of thing from happening. So, um, and it's the last thing any of us want. So it's just, it's, it's case by case basis. But I'm in the restaurant business and what we're looking for at the minute is, is to get a tailored set of supports in place that will reflect the restrictions that are in place. So if it's a case that um, we're asked to close early or if, if, if the business is closed altogether, is that our employees are protected with the wage subsidy and that businesses are supported in the form of a COVID restriction support scheme. Okay, well, there's a a government subcommittee meeting later today to discuss the introduction of specific measures to support the hospitality sector. Uh, We're being told that the employment wage subsidy scheme uh, is about to be cut. Do you think it's appropriate that should happen, or do you believe it should go back to where it was, we'll say, six months ago? I think it should go back to where it was six months ago. And there's, a, there's a, a strict set of criteria in place with the um, how you receive the um, the wage subsidy scheme. So you have to be shown to be down 30% or more on 2019's figures because the 2020 was a washout. So they used 2019 for the figures. So a lot of businesses won't be able to access those supports at the minute. But they're talking about the, um, the, the talk of the TUP re-emerging. I think that would be a bad idea, bringing the PUP, but I'd rather see the money go into the purse of the businesses to ensure that they continue to employ um, students, etc. That they're not they're not left out. Anybody that's on in casual uh, contracts. Yeah, but, uh, but, yeah but, but, but I have to put it to you, Mark. There's a lot of people who've been on the PUP and the PUP, the uh, the payment uh, unemployment uh, programme, has been the difference between being able to pay the bills and not. And some of them are caught in a tricky situation that if they're offered work, they lose the PUP. They then have to go on job seekers uh, benefits and so on. And in some cases, it's not appropriate to take up the work because there isn't enough work uh, to justify them taking up the offer. Can you understand the difficulty that some people are in in this particular situation? Well, you, you don't have to look too far to see the amount of jobs and the shortage of skills within our industry. So there's, I think on Indeed there's about forty or 50,000 jobs available there. So there's plenty of work. Don't kid yourself. There's plenty of work available. The Tarnisha had already come out 
and say that um, you know there's, there's plenty of jobs out there at the minute. So the last thing we want is people getting out and having and and all of a sudden businesses suffer. We can't get people into work in the first place. So the PUP will will have a negative impact on that. So what we're hoping for is that the wage subsidy is there is in place that we can keep um, the level of income for employees and um, without having to um, cancel their contracts. Okay, I mean, this would be, if you like, a boom time for people in your business. Um, are you getting many reports, you know, locally or indeed nationally of people, we'll say, cancelling Christmas parties, uh, cancelling functions that would normally take place at the end of the year? How is the current surge in infections impacting on your business? So, personally, we've, we've had about close to 1,000 cancellations for December. So with the so with the so air capacity, is, is that nationally or, or, or in your own particular business? That's a, that's in my own particular business. I've tell, over a thousand covers gone already for December, and that's all corporate bookings. I just had an event uh, cancelled this morning for fifty people midweek on a Wednesday. You know, so and that's probably the right decision that, that businesses are making, judging by the numbers that are there. But that's where we need the the levels of support from government to reflect what's happening on the ground because if you were to go back um, six or seven months ago we had a level system in place if you remember so we'd be level three to five would have closed their business there's no level restrictions in place at the minute all that's happened is is that we've been told that we have to close at 12 o'clock if, and as soon as levels three, four and five are initiated that'll activate these supports and they're not activating them so okay. it's mixed messaging from government what we need to know is where are we at where are we at here are we open or are we closed? If we're closed, give us the support. We'll follow public health advice, as we have done, all the way through this pandemic. And okay. that's what we're looking for, is just more clarity on what's happening at the minute, you know? All right, Mark. We'll see how that meeting goes uh, later on this evening when senior government ministers, as I say, uh, meet to discuss the introduction of specific measures to support the hospitality sector. Right, we'll leave it there. The 10 o'clock Thank news you. is coming up. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the IFA president, Tim Cullinan, said that the Save Irish Farming rally in Dublin sent a strong message to the government that negotiations with farmers on their future has to take place. This is all in connection to government plans to reduce uh, methane gas emissions. And this has serious implications, particularly for the... Uh, dairying sector and indeed the beef sector in this country. Tim Cullinan is the president of the Irish Farmers Association and joins me on the line right now. Uh, you held a protest in Dublin at the weekend. Um, no doubt the, uh, those in government got the message, but in real terms, do you accept that there's very little the government can do because there's a global push on at the moment to reduce methane emissions which come from cattle? Yeah, uh, good morning, Ken, and um I, I I don't accept that at all that um, the government cannot um, be part of, of coming up with a plan around all of this. I suppose if we look, I suppose, I think just briefly, if we look at it globally and we've seen what came out of COP26 recently, where, where the larger countries, um, the likes of uh, Russia, China, United States and, and India, you know, coming out of the COP, they... They clearly said that they're going to continue using fossil fuels, using coal, using oil, and um, you know putting such enormous pressure on a small country like ourselves, where it is, and we know for a fact 
that we have the most efficient country in the world as regards uh, emissions for producing dairy products here in Ireland, the fourth or fifth from a beef point of view. But, you know, that's where we're coming from. But saying that, uh, you know, we accept that we, we will play our part in all of this. We've been told for quite a while now by the government we are part of the solution. And you know, I was at COP26 myself only a few weeks ago and met a lot of uh, farm leaders from different countries around the world and in their countries, they're being told the same. But all governments are saying you're part of the solution, but they don't want to engage and come up with with, with a plan sure. to work through I, this. With, with And I suppose, Ken, what we're looking at here, we know now that, you're right, we have to reduce emissions by 22%. So when you put that into into tonnes, it's approximately 4.5 megatons that we have to reduce uh, compared to where we were us in 2018 and if we look at it like there could be a serious cost there for the sector an overall impact of the sector and this is a report that was done by KPMG recently it could cost the sector 1.1 billion per year or okay, 620 million inside the farm gate and 480 million um, yeah, yeah, for just, the processing yeah, but Tim, before, before I come to the, if you like, the figures and the number of people this impacts on, I mean, just to go to your opening um, response there to the question, are you effectively saying that Irish farmers should not do their bit for climate change unless the big nations are also on board as well? I think I, I think that is important, but I said we we have committed to doing this, but we need help from the government. If, if this is the direction of travel, our government is doing. But well, it is very annoying and worrying, concerning for farmers and for myself that you know, we're seeing what the bigger nations are not doing from a climate point of view. And you know, we've been asked to do all of this, and you know, it's back to the point you know, that the world population is increasing on a daily basis. Uh, we're going to need food to feed the, the, the number one, the number of people are in the in the world already, and obviously the the growing uh, population as well. And uh, we have to look at this globally if we're going to get a solution. And absolutely, we understand so that this is all about uh, decreasing the, the the earth warming up and so this one uh, reduction of one point five degrees. We accept all of that, but we need a balance and we need fair play around all of this. Okay, well, if uh, if you were the minister for agriculture and you were able to put a formula in place, what could the government do that your members would deem, if you like, acceptable? Yeah, I suppose what we're looking at, obviously with the measures that are, are being put in place, there's, there's going to be costs around this and obviously there's going to be funding needed here as well. And so to do all of this and we need a strategy or a plan for a minimum of 10 years because you know, if we look at it in particular on the dairy side, there has been serious investment by farmers over the last five or six years. Two, anything in the region of 2.2, 2.4 billion has been invested in that sector alone outside of any of the other sectors. And that has to be protected. That money has to be paid back to banks. What I mean, and all of sure. that has to happen. Okay, well, so, now there's, there's, there's something like 300,000 people working in the agri food sector in this country, and I think you say in your press release that you've contributed 13 billion euro in exports. I mean, are you saying that if Irish farmers reduce their output, whether it's in uh, dairying or even in other areas of agri food production, to get the carbon output down, are you saying that we'll say either the government or the European Commission should compensate farmers for those losses? Absolutely, I am indeed, and 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 because I mean, farmers went on so 
the vision of farming was you know, that we would grow the sector and which we did as farmers, we did grow the sector and um, you know, if any sector has to pull back, and you're right there's, there's, it's, there's 300,000 uh, people involved in, 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 in this sector up and down the country, like it's a massive amount of jobs if you take it outside of the, the, the greater um, um, rural, or sorry, the city areas, 14% of, of employment comes from the agri-sector, sure. whether it's directly from farms or you know, the, the associated industries, let it be the processing or whatever. Like that's a massive amount of people. And if we want to protect, like it's one thing here about protecting farming, but if we want to protect the social fabric of rural Ireland. Okay, well just let me put this question to you, Tim. Doing that. Yeah, the, the Greens are in government and they're driving this, if you like, this push to get our carbon output down. Did you have any input into what's called, the, if you like, the carbon budget? We had, um, I mean, when this bill came to the door last June and... Um, it was it was pushed through in fairness, but Eamon Ryan was driving this through. We looked for three amendments to it at that time. We got one amendment and it wasn't from the government, it was from the Senate at the time. And that whole one was about the carbon rem- or the removals, the emissions that uh, farmers can remove by sequestering carbon into the, the trees and hedgerows and, and, and grass and whatever. But what has happened since then, that was leaving us in a net-net position. So we ended up that there was a change in that again, and now we're at a growth net position. And land use has been separated out from agriculture until, my understanding, at least 2030. So it's going to be very difficult for us to offset okay, from a land point of view yeah. in the short term. A final question. And, 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 and the, reason, the reason it has been offset is because of the whole debacle in the forestry sector. We need to be planting oh, okay. 8,000 hectares of forestry sure. a year. And, and in fairness... The only people final question, that Tim. Is the government themselves. Yeah, final question, Tim. I mean, if you don't get, if you like, any flexibility from the government on this, what sort of job losses and loss to the exchequer are we talking about in the next 10 years? Yeah, we're looking at even, based on this on a 22%, we could see job losses of up to 10,000. And what sort of financial hit would that be on the exchequer? The exchequer, it could be anything between inside and outside farm gate. It could be up to 1.1 billion a year. So this is massive, which will import on, or sorry, impact on exports out of the country as well. So this is the, the serious situation we're we're faced with this morning. And on top of that, we're still in negotiations around the the, the cap reform and you know the, the funding and the proposal that has been put forward by okay. the minister in there is just not adequate to compensate farmers for the, the shift in money. All right, we leave it there. That's uh, Tim Cullinan, the the president of the Irish Farmers Association, about the difficulties that farmers face uh, as the government attempts to reduce our carbon output. Okay, more to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, Ray was in touch and he said on the high case numbers in County Loud, he says he cannot for the life of him understand why Drogheda doesn't have its own COVID test centre, given the size of the population and the fact that it has the highest case numbers in the country. Surely it would make sense to have potential cases limited to the local area instead of making them travel elsewhere to be tested and possibly spreading the virus further. Yeah, that's a fair point. I wonder if Dr. Mary Scully, who is a GP based at the Abbey House Medical Centre in Navin would agree with that Um, uh, the point there uh, Dr Scully is that um, Drogheda because of its size um, should have its own Covid test centre do you think that that would be logical or is there another if you like formulaic reason why that is not the case Um, I'm not really sure why the um, locations for the testing centres were at 
greed. I mean, for example, Navin, which is, again, another large town, and we don't have a testing centre, um, you know, in the town either. Um, there were some pop-up sort of testing centres that appeared during the height of COVID, um, you know, and, and that was very useful, but um, they've gone now. Um, and absolutely, I would agree that Drogheda should have its own testing centre as well. You know, the, the testing centre seems to be completely overrun at the moment with the numbers of people turning up. And, you, you, for example, you can't book a test online for love no money. Um, so, you know, it would make sense to me, certainly, to um, to have some further testing centres set up, and particularly in areas where there are high case numbers, certainly. OK, well, let's talk about the issue of uh, booster jabs. Um, a lot of us who got vaccinated earlier in the summer uh, were told that certainly when the Delta variant came along that we might need to get boosters. First of all, uh, why is it necessary to get a booster jab if you already have been vaccinated? Well, there's an, a number of reasons. First of all, when the vaccinations were formulated, uh, they were formulated for the original uh, COVID virus, which was a thing called the Wuhan virus. And there have been a number of new variants since then, and the current one is the Delta variant. And it's possibly not quite as good against the Delta variant as the first thing. Um, secondly, um, you know, we, we haven't had time to study the vaccinations because they were rushed out so fast. And it now appears that the immunity that is being given by these vaccines isn't as long-lasting as we might have hoped. And it does seem that six months after the vaccine, your rate of immunity um, has, you know, diminished considerably. And that is why a booster is now being given. Um, it's kind of sort of going to be a bit, as somebody said on the radio um, during the week, a, a bit like hepatitis B vaccine. It's going to be going to turn out to be a three-dose vaccine. So like hepatitis B, which is given at one, one first day, one a month later, and one six months later. But see, that will seem to be kind of now the way forward for COVID vaccination is it will be a three-dose vaccine. Okay, is there any evidence emerging or are you seeing it yourself that people are taking the attitude that because they got vaccinated earlier in the summer, the sense of urgency and fear that uh, applied prior to vaccination doesn't seem to have the same impact now because people feel, oh, well, look, I've been vaccinated. Uh, There hasn't been a bother on me since May or June. I don't really need a booster. Are people become, I think the phrase is lackadaisical about this? Um, there probably is a bit of that. You know, people did certainly feel much better protected once they had the, the vaccination. And that was certainly reflected in numbers requiring hospitalisation for severe illness. Um, you know, it was only really kind of, a, you know, the you know older people with sort of underlying illness that ended up in hospital when they had been vaccinated. So for the vast majority of people, vaccination did give you know, good protection. Um, but what we want to try and point out to people now is that that protection is waning and it is, you know, uh, you know incumbent upon us to try and get people, um, particularly people at risk, to have a booster vaccine. So that would be the elderly, uh, immunocompromised um, healthcare workers. Um, and now it's being um, advocated for anybody from 50 upwards and also anybody with any long-term illness. Are you concerned about the level of no-shows, as they are referred to, people who've been booked in and didn't bother their Barney to go? Um, 
I'm not sure uh, about this. Is probably in the uh, the HSE's mass vaccination centres. We've been doing vaccination boosters here in our clinic in Abbey House, and we have had very few no-shows. In fact, now we have been doing a vulnerable population. We've been doing the over 80s, and now we're doing the over 70s. So they are certainly all keen to get it and very much coming in for them. Um, I think one of the problems with the HSE is that uh, you're sent uh, an appointment by text and there is no real facility to um, cancel it. So say if you've had your vaccination elsewhere, um, you can't cancel it. So you keep getting texts all the time, even though perhaps you've had it elsewhere. So they're, they're now, they fixed this now, they have a, a, a way of cancelling the vaccine if you have already had it. But I wonder, was that part of the reason why there were seeming no-shows? Because people had had it elsewhere, but there was no facility to actually cancel that appointment on the text. You could only sort of cancel it temporarily, um, you know, by saying new, and then you got another new appointment, and this kept going on. Um, you know, because I, I know this because this has happened to me. You know, I have had my booster at work, but the HSE kept calling me, um, but now I have a way of cancelling it. Are you satisfied that the government is doing enough to get the message across? Well, you know, there doesn't... No, non-stop talk about COVID and Tony Holohan has been, you know, telling people um, ad infinitum or ad nauseum, whichever term you prefer, um, about getting, um, you know, getting their booster and, you know, all the public health measures. I think there's probably a lot of COVID fatigue around. People are just generally fed up with the whole thing, um, you know, and there's probably a bit of that. Uh, in the reasoning why people perhaps are being, as you say, a little bit more lackadaisical. Well, now, on the issue of uh, the reopening of pubs and nightclubs and so on, do you think, in light of the surge in the figures in the last couple of weeks, that it was wise? In hindsight, probably not, um, you know, because the numbers have been, you know, astronomical and certainly... I will be very concerned about the health system um, over the course of the winter. It is on the verge of collapse. Um, you know, and even like the major hospitals are struggling, uh, you know, to, for, with, with COVID ICU beds, etc. So there is a real worry that this may, uh, you know, there may be, you know, some critical incidents, including the one we heard about over the weekend where someone's transplant wasn't able to be given to them because of no ICU bed. So there's going to be a lot more of that. And in hindsight, yes, it probably wasn't the right decision. But we went to know. We thought the vaccines were in place. We thought things would be better. And, and, you know, I suppose at some point we had to open up and see what was going to happen. And now the government are in a difficult situation because it's a matter of weeks until Christmas. And the thought of having to lock down hospitality or restaurants Um, at this point in time is going to be an incredibly unpopular move um, and one I think the government would like to avoid at all costs, hence all the emphasis now on getting booster doses and, you know, public health measures, etc., and cutting down discretionary contact, etc., etc., because really they'll only lock down again, I think, if they're completely backed into a corner by the numbers. Yeah, just one final question, uh, Mary. There's been a very high rate of absenteeism in schools, for example, and there appears to be, if you like, a bad flu going around. Some people are getting flu symptoms and they think they have COVID. Is this in any way uh, making life extra difficult for people like you? Uh, 
Yes, there's a number of respiratory bugs going around. There are very high rates of a different virus called respiratory syncytial virus, RSV. There's very high rates of that around at the moment as well. Um, And the symptoms are not dissimilar from COVID. It's cough, temperatures, a bit of breathlessness, wheezing, etc. So, you know, it's impossible to distinguish from COVID just on examining someone. So the only real way of getting, uh, you know, finding out which it is, is to get a COVID test. Um, So there's that in the whole mix, along with all the kind of the other usual coughs and colds that are, you know, usually prevalent at this time of year as well. So, yes, it is making life quite difficult, all right. Okay, I think the the vaccination rate in the country at the moment is around 94%. It's one of the highest uh, in the world, and yet we have this surge in infections. Is this Mm -hmm. a case of those opposed to vaccination are now basically bearing the brunt? It's, you know, I would be kind of reluctant to blame the unvaccinated for um, this surge because it really is only a small part of it all. Um, You know, there is all the, um, you know, the fact that the virus is waning, the fact that the Delta variant is probably a lot more transmissible and the vaccine possibly isn't as effective against that. So, um, and then just, you know, people's behaviour, you know, there's a lot more mixing and it's mixing indoors because of the weather and, you know, things have opened up again. So there are a lot of factors explaining the surge and it's not just about the unvaccinated, although they, of course, are a factor. Okay, we're going to leave it there. Thanks uh, once again for joining us. I know you're a regular contributor to the programme. That's uh, Dr. Mary Scully there, who's based at Abbey House Medical Centre in Navan. It just gives me a chance to get to to some of your comments and lots of them coming in this morning. Davey was in touch and says the time for relying on people's common sense or sense of social responsibility is gone. You only have to look at the growing case numbers to see that some people obviously cannot be trusted to act responsibly. So it's time for the government to step in and take control of the matter. Shane was in touch. He says it's the nightclubs who are annoying him the most of all in this. For the past year, they've been constantly saying if they were allowed to reopen, they would respect the rules and be a safe environment. Now that a small restriction has been imposed on them, they're trying to manipulate the rules by opening earlier. It's hard to have sympathy for them, he says. Sheila thinks an enforced lockdown is the only way to reduce the spread at this stage. People seem to have lost the run of themselves in recent weeks. Mask wearing, hand washing seems to have gone out the window for a lot of people and that's why we're in the mess that we're currently in. And Michael in Drum Conrath uh, was in touch to say that a full lockdown comes into force in Austria from today. That's the way to deal with growing case numbers. Uh, Anne doesn't understand how some government reps are saying that nobody saw this huge spike in case numbers coming. The dogs on the street could see this coming uh, once everything reopened. And for government to say otherwise just highlights how little forward planning there was for the reopening and their inability uh, to navigate us through this. So that's just some of the comments uh, coming in this morning. Michael Michael Reed on on LMFM. Now, it's 11 months on since the United Kingdom government and the European Commission agreed a deal in relation to the British exit from the European Union, but the British were given a grace period of three months to the end of March, and then March came, and that grace period was extended to sort out so-called, if you like, minute difficulties that exist in the relationship between the UK and the EU in relation to the movement of goods between Britain and Northern Ireland. 
If you thought COVID was complicated, Article 16 of the Northern Ireland Protocol is equally uh, complicated and uh, not too many people know where they're at. The British have been threatening to activate Article 16 and I must say I've read it about nine. 10 times perhaps and still not exactly sure what Article 16 means. Maybe Matt Carthy can tell us. He's Sinn Féin TD for Cavan Monaghan and a former MEP. In terms of the negotiations between the EU and the UK, are you any the wiser, Matt, as to where we're at? Well, (laughs) that's a big question, Ken. I have to say good morning to you and your listeners. Um, I, I think we're at a delicate point. Clearly, the rhetoric of the British government has softened in recent days, and I think that's that's welcome, although I wouldn't put too much emphasis on on exactly what that means, um, because unfortunately we know that the north of Ireland has been used as a, as a bit of a pawn by the British government in respect of, in, in the most recent phase, um, trying to mask the serious challenges that Brexit has presented in terms of their own um, politics and economy um, on the island of Britain. But here's the crux and here's the big lie um, that um, not only the British government, but some unfortunately within unionism are trying to present that the protocol is in some way damaging to the economy in the north, when actually the exact opposite is the case. And I think one of the most welcome developments of recent times was the mobilisation by border communities against Brexit along the border where they actually put out in very clear terms that they want the British government to back off their very dangerous um, position at the at the moment. They want to see the protocol work and they recognise the economic value and protection that the protocol has put in sure. place. Not well, only in terms of creating new jobs, which it clearly has, but what is more difficult to gauge is the number of jobs and the protection that okay. is actually provided up sure. until now. Sure, Matt. Let me put this point to you. And I'm reading the protocol right here in front of me. And this is uh, Section 2 of Article 16. And it says, If a safeguard measure taken by the EU or the UK, as the case may be, in accordance with Paragraph 1, creates an imbalance between the rights and obligations under this protocol, the EU or the UK, as the case may be, may take such proportionate rebalancing measures as are strictly necessary to remedy the imbalance. Now, that all sounds probably vague to the average uh, radio listener, but is it possible that the British interpretation of that is that if British trade to Northern Ireland suffers, uh, that the British could, if you like, put measures in place that would see the reimposition of a physical border. Is that a possibility? It's very clear, and I'm no legal expert, but my understanding of Article 16 is that any um, consequences that would be mitigated by Article 16 would be unforeseen circumstances and consequences and they clearly, the British government see Article 16 as a negotiating tool, as um, an opportunity to try and uh, extract further concessions, if you like. I have to say, um, as somebody who understands and has dealt with the European Union intrinsically, um, that I have been surprised with just how flexible the EU have been in terms of bringing forward 
alternative propositions. And we have seen in a number of occasions where the goalposts have quite literally in front of the eyes of the world been moved by the British government. And I suppose the most um, stark element of that was the utterances more recently of the ECJ, which haven't been mentioned, weren't mentioned in the original protocol negotiations, weren't mentioned in the withdrawal um, negotiations pertaining to the North. Um, and yet, um, when the European Union moved to address some of the issues that, as you've raised, regarding potential trade um, issues, um, all of a sudden the ECJ was brought on as a number of uh, as a new a, a new a new challenge. Um, but this is the the crux of it: Brexit. Um, and of course, the attitude of the British government and the DUP to the protocol, Article 16, all of those encompasses are essentially about the politics of the, um, the battering ram um, by the British government. They're the sure. politics of self-interest. They are using these issues sure. um, as a mechanism for okay. confrontation. Um, and it's, it's about the politics of division and demoralisation, whereas what the protocol is in many respects, is the natural outworking of the Good Friday Agreement okay. and Brexit, which in in themselves were incompatible. Yeah, OK. Um, I, the, least, the, the recent figures I've seen show that I think trade between uh, the North and the Republic has increased by something like 60%, which suggests at face value that the Northern Irish economy is no worse off and, in fact, if anything, uh, has grown slightly. So on that basis, uh, do the British basically have no grounds to be threatening Article 16 uh, on the rest of Europe. Oh, absolutely. There's no grounds for triggering Article 16. What I think is more disappointing is that they're doing so with the behest and the support of political leaders, so-called, in the six counties. And this is what is absolutely mind-boggling because the protocol has protected countless businesses that would have otherwise have uh, um, been forced to close um, and lose all the jobs associated with and the economic activity. Um, and what's bizarre is that this has happened at a time where the British um, economy is under in immense strain and where the global economy has been trying to tackle with COVID-19. So this is a period where the North would have generally expected to um, have um, you know, harsh economic conditions. On the contrary, what we've actually seen is lots of jobs that would have otherwise have been lost as a result of Brexit have been protected by the protocol um, and in turn we have seen the creation and, of new jobs and companies making conscious decisions to invest in the, in the North because it has access to both the British and the European market uniquely so and all of that is good for all of us on the island of Ireland because it means that it generates economic activity and as you rightly say not only have we seen a substantial increase in trade North to South but we've also seen um, um, a significant increase in trade south to north. So the all-Ireland economy is improving. And that's good for everybody, regardless of whether you're, you're, you're a unionist or a republican or which political party you um, pledge your allegiance to. If you're a farmer, if you're a business person, if you're a worker, if you're involved in community activity, this is good news because it means that your children will be able to um, secure employment and live in the place in which they grew up. And of course, that should be the fundamental starting point of uh, political ambitions for all of us. Okay, and just one final question. I presume that no matter what happens, uh, the European Commission is going to stand by the Republic of Ireland position on this and will be less, if you like, sympathetic to the British position. 
Well, let's see how all of this plays out. As I say, I've been quite impressed by the resolve of the European Commission, including in terms of finding um, finding solutions. But this isn't the position of one part of Ireland, whether it be the south or the north. Remember again, a majority of people in the north voted to remain part of the European Union. A majority of political parties support that um, um, objective. Um, when that was removed from us by the British government, unilaterally removing the north, um, okay. all and a vast majority of people, of businesses, of farmers and of communities across the six counties and across the entire island of Ireland want this protocol to work. It is a small minority who unfortunately have the ear of the British government that are trying to scupper this which in, in a manner which would be devastating economically, politically and socially. All right. OK, we're going to have to leave it there, Matt, because we have other things to, to get Thank to you, before Ken. the end of the programme. That's uh, Matt Carthy there, Sinn Féin TD for Cavan Monaghan. OK, more to come. We'll take a break. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, a report in today's Irish Independent says that the national school system is creaking at the seams as thousands of children and teachers are out sick every day. Now, we don't know whether it's all COVID-related, whether it's flu or colds or whatever, uh, and it's just one of several problems in the primary school sector at present. I'm joined on the line right now by Joe McKeown, who is the president of the Irish National Teachers Organisation. Joe, before I get into this survey, uh, We've been getting reports that, for example, out at Terman Fecken National School, just outside Drogheda uh, here in County Loud, there's a problem over uh, a scarcity of substitute teachers. How much of a problem is this nationwide? In our own survey, and Terman Fecken is no different to, to many other areas, uh, one third of the, the, the days, substitutable days, were just not covered. Um uh, and, and uh, special education teachers had to be redeployed. But there's no doubt about it that staffing and putting a Garda vetted body in front of every group of children every single day is extraordinarily challenging for schools. That's why we uh, conducted the survey to get a snapshot of it. But we've also have identified possible solutions uh, to address the issue for schools like Terman Fagan. Okay, I mean, what is the problem? Is it that they're just not there? Are they, if you like, pursuing alternative careers? Or is it a case of some of them, the work is so irregular that if they uh, take up a day here and a day there, they might lose their PUP payment and they're waiting till this whole crisis blows over so that there's some normality brought back into their lives? Or what exactly is the problem? Well, I, I certainly don't think the, the PUP payment is, is the big issue. The big issue is that there are more, as with all workplaces, there are more people absenting themselves from work, more teachers who are absent for a variety of different reasons. But COVID is a significant factor. And again, you know, what, what we identified in the last couple of weeks was teachers who were, uh, um, who, who, who were absent due to COVID. Uh, and, and we know that that is you know, in, in the hundreds uh, at the moment. And that's causing a big issue and people who are out for close contact. So it's because of the increased amount of absences that has led to an increased demand for substitute teachers. And therefore, we have a, a, an issue with supply. So we need to we need to address that. OK. Yeah. Yeah, let me move on. You've conducted a survey nationwide in relation to absenteeism and the number of pupils and teachers who are out of school. Talk us through what you found. Well, what we found, uh, for example, was that in, in areas like Louth, you know, the, the first way we found for children that there was a variety, you know, a spread in terms of the percentage. So in the two-week period that we assessed, for example, in Louth, 
the numbers were 2%. In Mead, it was 2.4%. But in places like Kerry, it was as low as 0.1%. Um, but we also discovered that for, for, for teachers, um, that there were, there, there were 675 teachers who were absent through COVID during that time. It's, it's ranging at 3.6% of staff had uh, tested positive. So that's having the impact on our schools. Uh, and we also know on a general level that in addition to the pupils, like we know that from, from the figures, that there are 9,000 pupils uh, who are primary school pupils who tested positive in the last 14 days. But we also know from what the teacher announced last week that there are probably 14,000 pupils who are asymptomatic who are in our schools and we can't identify them because we don't have contact tracing. Um, but the survey was a useful snapshot. It shows what we all know, that one third of uh, uh, days cannot be filled. We cannot find substitute teachers for one third of the days and that a significant number of uh, primary school pupils are testing positive throughout the country. OK, well, according to your survey, in the first two weeks of November, a minimum of 3,726 pupils and 605 teachers tested positive. Some people might say, was it wise to get children and teachers back into school, particularly at a time when certain academics, and I'm thinking of the likes of Kingston Mills uh, and more, Orla Hegarty, well-known high-profile academics, uh, were saying that schools should have proper or ventilation systems uh, installed, but it seems the government is not listening. Was it wise to reopen the schools when we did? Well, I think the, the, the reason for reopening the schools uh, clearly is because we all know the impact of closing schools. But we've always made the case that the best way to keep schools open is to keep schools safe. And there's no doubt about it that on the ventilation, not enough has been done. And we know this is an airborne virus and we know that recommendations have been made. Um, but the European recommendations that come in, we have put in the monitors in a small number of classes. We need more of the monitors to identify where the problems are. And then schools need to know what they're to do when there's a problem. Um, and I know that people like Orla Hegarty and others have made recommendations, but there is no doubt about it that we all know now that ventilation is important. And we also know that in many classrooms, particularly the overcrowded ones, it's not adequate. Sure. And okay. more needs to be done. Last question, Joe. I mean, what are the implications if these COVID numbers continue to, to rise at the rate they're going? What are the implications for the national school system? Well, I mean, there are two things that will, that, that will happen, one of which has already started. On an individual school level, schools will find it very difficult to keep all classes open every day. And therefore, you will have an increase in the number of situations where uh, classes may have to be left at home. And that would be very disruptive for everybody, but it just simply won't be possible. On a national basis, quite obviously, if numbers increase in the community, numbers in, uh, will increase in the schools and it will put the schools under intolerable strain. And obviously, we don't want a situation where schools uh, end up closing. But we're saying very clearly to public health and to the government, more support needed to prevent the uh, situation where schools are closing. 
Okay, we'll leave it there. We'll uh, hopefully uh, return to this in the coming weeks. It seems to be a problem while the COVID numbers are certainly increasing. That's uh, Joe McKeown there, President of the Irish National Teachers Organisation. Okay, I want to move on now to uh, an issue in Trim in County Meath, and it relates to limited availability of places at Boyne Community School in Trim. And uh, Deputy Johnny Gwerk of Sinn Féin, who is TD for Meath West, raised this uh, in the Iraq this. Um, First of all, Johnny, talk us through what the situation is at Boyne Community School in Trim. Thanks, Ken. Um, Well, this year, Ken, you had 362 applications and you have only 192 places, which means that there's 170 um, kids losing out at the moment with no place for secondary school come September. Um, How upsetting is this for parents, particularly parents who, if you like, have grown up in the Trim area and can't get their sons or daughters into the school that they actually once went to? I'd be talking to parents, Michael, who are only a couple of hundred yards from the school and they have, these parents could be 80 on the list, there could be 100 on the list or further down. It's huge stress for parents, Michael. We, we are on, inundated with emails and phone calls from parents over this. Uh, have parents on, on the phone uh, in tears, you know, so it's hugely stressful for them, you know. So I've written to the, um, the Minister for Education task her to intervene and come up with a, for now, a short-term solution, but in, in, in a medium-term solution we need a new school. In 2001, my, um, Ken, when this school was opened, the population uh, was around 5,500. Now you're talking like over double that in, in the term area, you know. Well, now, the 170 children who couldn't get a place in Boyne Community School, what alternatives d- did they have? Where else could they go? Well, they, they can't really go anywhere. Um, it's the only um, boys and girls school that is in Trim, you know, and it, it, there's there's, there's um, some um, solutions that are going to have to be put in place by the Minister for Education. She needs to liaise with the school and uh, come up with solutions, whatever it is. But, you know, the, 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 you know the, this situation has gone on. It wouldn't be as bad as this year, but it's gone on for the last few years, you know. So it needs to be sorted. Like, And, and the stress it's putting on parents and kids is unbelievable. Uh, is it true that in one case a set of twins uh, were enrolled by their parents and the school took one of the twins and the other twin didn't have a school to go to? That was that was last year, um, Ken, when uh, one one kid was admitted and the other one wasn't. You know, so you can imagine that on on the parents. You know, so. But uh, they, they, there are 16 schools, um, uh, primary schools in this catchment area that can apply to enrol in the Bryan Community School. You know, so it's it's a huge amount of them. Um, so the long term solution is a new school for Trim. But in the in the, in the short term, I think we need um, extra places provided as a matter of urgency. And these parents need to know that come September that the kids have a secondary school and they're going to get a secondary education. And finally, Johnny, I mean, what response are you getting from the Department of Education? Well, we haven't got any at the moment. Um, Ken, we only wrote to them last week now. I've brought it up in the dawn and try and um, highlight it as much as I can and um, put pressure on the Department of Education to come up with a solution to this. You know, they can come up with a solution. You know, they, they need to find more places in the short term, wherever they find them, um, Ken, but that needs to be... The, and they need to look at the, at the longer-term solution of a new school. The population since 2001 has over-doubled. Like, you know, so did, when this school was built, it was built for um, a lot smaller population than what's there at the moment.
Okay, well, our sympathies go to the parents of the 170 children there in Trim who can't get a place in school. We're going to have to leave it there. Johnny Gwerk, Sinn Féin TD from Either West, thanks for joining us on the programme, and that just about wraps it up for this morning. Michael Reid will be back with you tomorrow morning. I want to thank uh, Paul McKenna on sound. I want to thank Maggie Maguire, who produced. Thanks for getting in touch. That's it for myself, Ken Murray. I'll talk to you again soon, and until the next time, bye for now. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.